1: This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
2: Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week... Spycast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spymasters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Okay, well, I'm so (laughs) glad. I'm so glad that we got this to work, and I'm really pleased that we're going to have a discussion about intelligence, information, misinformation, disinformation, and a whole bunch of other things besides. So I wondered if to start off, could you just tell us how both of you got involved and in the things that we're speaking about here today? How did you first come to that? Was it a straight route out of college or was it more circuitous or was it something else? Do you want to start, Lisa?
0: Sure. I got into the countering disinformation space via trial by fire, which I personally think is the best way to learn anything. So I had previously, so I, I got my start in politics. I was working on the Capitol Hill on the foreign affairs and judiciary portfolios. And then I was a consultant at U.S. Um, federal agencies focused on international affairs. And then subsequently, I went and worked on Senator Angus King's re-election campaign. And that was in 2018. And the unique thing about 2018 is that it was the election after 2016. And so I was the digital director and I I sat there and the senator is on Armed services and intelligence and energy committees. And I said to myself, what will we do if and when this happens to us? It was also right around the time that special counsel Robert Mueller's indictment of the 13 Russians and how they did it came out. And so it's one of those indictments where you read it and you think to yourself, nobody's getting extradited from St. Petersburg because of this. However, this is the playbook. So it laid out what happened and we had to figure out from there, what would we do? How would we even know if this was happening? What should we be looking for? And so we developed a strategy, I would say 85% of what we did work. 15% did not. We stopped doing the 15%. And then after that, when I got off the campaign trail, this was just the issue that was keeping me up at night. And so I started a Alethea Group because I figured if I was going to be kept up at night, it might as well be because I'm doing something about it instead of just waiting to see what would happen. So now I am the founder of Alethea Group. We are a firm that detects and mitigates instances of disinformation, misinformation, social media manipulation, and online harms, including those that pose threats to physical security. And we've been able to do a lot of really great work leveraging open source intelligence. And that's how I've come to this space.
2: Okay, there's a few things I want to pick up on there. But before we do that, could you just tell us how you got into this world, Avril?
3: Sure. So after I graduated college, I became a police officer. I did that for seven years and then moved over to a state agency as a narcotics agent. Did that for a few years, started getting a little bit bored with that, right? Same stuff, different day kind of thing. Went back to school for intelligence analysis to get my master's degree. While I was in the middle of getting my master's, we got new leadership at the agency I worked for, and they came in and wanted to build an intelligence component for the state agency. So I raised my hand and volunteered and said, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'll give it a shot. Fortunately, I worked in narcotics. I worked in the Bureau of Narcotics Investigations. So there was a ton of intel. It opened up a whole new world looking into cartel-level trafficking and all the information that was out there. became immediately apparent how much our agency needed this information to drive their strategic priorities and how we hadn't had it up until that point and landed me in the intel field unexpectedly. (laughs) It was a nice change from being on the street. That was for sure.
2: I want to pick up on a couple of things with each of you, but I was thinking, Lisa, could you tell us just a little bit more about that baptism of fire and the 85% that did work and also the 15% that didn't?
0: Definitely. So there are a couple of things to know about campaigns, and I think especially for folks who are used to working in and around government, it won't surprise anybody that you're asked to essentially give people the moon on a shoestring budget. And so we had to essentially figure out or taking a step back. If we think about influence operations, and we think about disinformation and social media manipulation, what we're really talking about is trying to change people's mind. So what's interesting about disinformation and one of the reasons why so much all of it can essentially be combated through open source intelligence, and when I say open source, I don't mean summarizing news articles. I mean doing true all-source investigations, is because we're not talking anymore about a terrorist organization that is running an operation to try to reach the three to five people in a U.S. city and get them to buy the plane ticket and board the plane. We're talking about sophisticated actors who are trying to influence broad swaths of the population in broad daylight. Sometimes they're even using things like state propaganda that are clearly labeled as such as being affiliated with a foreign state government, and yet we still fall for it, which is a whole other conversation. So knowing this, what we were able to do was build a strategy and a methodology to go out and detect instances of disinformation and misinformation early before it started going viral on Twitter. Because by the time something has already reached the point of being widespread and widely adopted and widely believed, it's often too late. So we boiled down our universe to really two key decision points. The first is whether or not somebody was actually going to show up and vote on election day. There's a way to influence an election outcome, which is telling people to stay home. The second is when you show up to vote on election day, have you been fed narratives that you now believe, such as a candidate is a socialist or a pedophile or part of a deep state cabal, that could potentially cause you to vote for a candidate that if you didn't believe that narrative, you wouldn't have otherwise voted for? By putting it into those two key decision points, you can build backwards to figure out what is the intelligence that you need? When does it become actionable? What is it that you're actually trying to protect in terms of individuals and an audience? Um, The 15% that didn't work was fact checking, frankly. Fact-checking doesn't matter in today's world. And I know that that's a bold thing to say, but people are being targeted based on their biases. They believe what they want to believe with the information that they're providing. What does work is creating more context. So when all of this is being fought as a war out in the open, what you're able to do is shine light on those networks. You're able to add more context to the conversation. You're able to explain to people who fooled them, why they had that motivation and what the potential impact is. And the universal truth is that nobody likes to be fooled. And so being able to get creative with the different intervention strategies, and this is now what we do at Aletheia Group, has made us successful in pushing back against influence operations.
2: For people that don't know Angus King, correct me if I'm wrong, he was a senator for Maine.
0: That's correct, so, she still is,
2: yes, yeah, still is. I mean, some people would think disinformation we're talking about stuff that happens in maybe Washington or Moscow or London, um what was the disinformation campaign against someone from a state that many listeners will never have been to was help us understand that kind of battle space that you talked about
0: well, first of all, if you've never been to Maine, you should go and contact me. I will send you a list, but. The thing about disinformation, and it doesn't just occur on campaigns, it's targeting private companies, it's targeting our workforces, you look at the disinformation around the coronavirus vaccine, it's trying to get people to not take the vaccine, that has nothing to do with an election. With all of this, the thing about disinformation is what started as being state-controlled propaganda, because the idea of lying to achieve a goal is neither novel nor particularly hard to wrap your mind around. What's interesting about disinformation, though, and its impacts when it's put on social media, is that it's fast, cheap, and easy to do. And so what we've seen is a proliferation of threat actors who are all trying to achieve different goals for different reasons. So, yes, it's the Russians, it's the Iranians, it's the Chinese, it's so on and so forth, any state government with a PSYOPs branch of its military. What it also is, though, is it's individuals seeking a profit. It's individuals who are seeking to monetize these platforms, whether it's through ad revenue or driving traffic to an online store to sell merchandise, whether it's using some of the fundraising platforms. But what they're doing is they're weaponizing information against us as individuals. And with that, that's where it becomes really critical. And so even since 2018, it's only three years later, we've seen the threat landscape change completely with new tactics, techniques, and procedures to be able to execute these different influence operations or disinformation efforts. And so it really just depends on who the threat actor is and what their goal is. And then that will ultimately determine how people are going to be impacted and what the threat is in terms of influence.
2: Maine is one of the four states I've never been to so send, send me, me a, a list, list. So send, I'm
0: ready <laughs>
2: so yeah make sure make sure you provide me with that information
0: no problem just don't give it to anybody else because I don't want everybody to find the best restaurants like keep them secret so I can still get in
2: yeah I won't share that intelligence any further just before we come back to April, you spoke about like fact-checking doesn't matter in today's environment does that shake your faith in human nature we're basically saying that people are pretty gullible does that shake your faith in all of the ideas that we have about the reason and evidence and logic and all of the good stuff that we normally spout but actually we're just a a bag of emotions and biases and we can be swayed one way or the other when the right strings are pulled
0: so I'm the eternal optimist. I actually think we can get ourselves out of this situation. Otherwise, I would have a really depressing job, and I love going to work every day, even when work is my living room because we're in a pandemic. I do think that what this means is that as technology has changed the way that we interact with information, we need to have more creative solutions. There are a lot of reasons why disinformation and misinformation is, are effective. As tactics. A lot of that has to do with how we consume information. So, over 70% of Americans get their information from social media, their news. And when you think about social media, that's not what it was ever designed for. And so, we have to talk about the impact of those algorithms. And it's really important because when you think about your own social media feed. So not to shock anybody, but I read a lot of news around national security from places like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN. And so what do you think organically shows up in my news feeds, which are designed to keep me on the platform, because that's how platforms monetize. Same with the Apple News app, same with anytime you are interacting with news, that's being collected as essentially surveillance capitalism is the term that is used around this industry, to be able to track your online behavior, to feed you more information that the algorithms think you wanna see. So when we have that knowledge, we can change the way that we interact with information back. So we can actively go out and seek different news sources that you may not otherwise see in your feeds. If you're noticing that you're only seeing Fox News or you're only seeing MSNBC, Take the conscious step to go start looking and searching for the other sources and notice how your feed changes. I also think we can just read more critically It's funny how older generations were the ones that told us not to believe everything we see on the internet. And, you know, I do this and my own mother and I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast will send me things. And I'm like, where did you get this? So it's the kind of thing where if we start reading more critically and we start reading our news feeds the way we would read a newspaper and look for instances of biases, look at who the author is. When was it published? What is the lead? What is that telling us? What's the source? Then we can start to read more critically and determine what information we actually trust. So, do I think that we are being spoon fed steady diets of disinformation based on what it is that we've told these algorithms we want to see? Yes. Do I think that we can also get ourselves out of this mess? Absolutely but we have to get back to the basics and we have to figure out how we can continue to have civil discourse, how we can have conversations with people we disagree with, how we can be open minded and how we can teach people to read news and be able to interpret what's happening. And I am still hopeful that we can do those things and I am hopeful that, you know, with through the right mix of education, of regulation, of different programming and frankly taking a little bit of action against the people who did this to us we should be able to fix this mess
2: over to avro your career trajectory is absolutely fascinating police officer narcotics agent intelligence analyst now you're working for github tell us a lot bit more about your own journey
3: yeah as i mentioned it was kind of unexpected i liked working in law enforcement. I liked being a police officer. I was really good at buying drugs, which is how I got recruited into narcotics. (laughs) Apparently, I make a really good crackhead. So I bought drugs for a long time. And then as I continued in narcotics, once I started a family, I didn't want to be buying drugs and guns and things like that anymore. So Intel was looking like the better career path. I wanted to be on a more normal schedule, maybe a little less kicking doors, things like that. You know, you get a little older, priorities change a little bit. (laughs) So I ended up in Intel and I ended up building an intelligence team for the attorney general's office in Pennsylvania. Did that for five years, started from nothing for an agency that didn't really even know what they were asking for when they asked for an Intel team. (laughs) And it was great to really dig into it. And once I started building relationships and learned how to build relationships with the different federal agencies, the other states, Epic, all the different things out there where right? I could collect all this strategic intel on narcotics trends and what's going on in the world to be able to turn around and give that information back. We were really able to predict the methamphetamine trend before it even hit Pennsylvania. We were able to give that information to our leadership and really sort of change the trajectory of what our agency was working on to try and prepare for what we knew was coming. So it was really neat to see things that you actually learn in school, like come true in real life and actually have like actionable things you could do and be ahead of the game. And then did that for a while and then ended up moving over to the private sector, which has been a whole different type of Intel. You know, I brought Dean with me and have him building a second Intel team for me now. So things have come full circle. <laughs> but the private sector is a whole different world. It's a whole different type of Intel that we're doing. It's different information we're looking for. We're protecting a company now rather than protecting the constituents of Pennsylvania. So it's been pretty interesting to see that all the different ways that you know, Intel plays a part in all these different career fields and different paths.
2: There's a couple of things there I want to pick up on, but one of the questions that I had when I was reading about your background was, do cartels have their own intelligence shops? The Cali Cartel or the Guadalajara Cartel? I know that they've co-opted people from special forces and the police and so forth. Did, did they do the same with intelligence professionals? let's get people in to run counterintelligence against the government. But do you have any ideas?
3: I imagine they do. They have essentially unlimited resources. They have way more money than the state government ever will. (laughs) And than most law enforcement ever will. And we've seen them co-opt people across all different sorts of career paths, depending on what they need. So if there's something they need, they don't have any problem getting those resources and putting them to use. So there's based on what we know about what they've done and how they, they target different people. Like They have to have someone collecting that information on who to target, who's who's valuable to them with express kidnappings. Who is it that they want to grab and what's the likelihood that somebody's going to pay up and they can make their money. So it's, it's all about, it's a business for them. So they're, it would be in their best interest to have intel resources at their disposal. So I'm sure they do.
2: With the Attorney General's office, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Cause One of the things that I really love about my job is that I get to shine a light on all of these parts of the intelligence ecosystem. A lot of people don't necessarily think about There's Intel shops all over the place, right? So tell us a little bit more about this Intel shop that you were involved in.
3: Sure. The attorney general's office is a state agency in Pennsylvania. It has both sworn and civilian employees. So there are some investigators that investigate different civil issues that aren't sworn, but it also has a pretty significant law enforcement sworn component that are either special agents or narcotics agents. When I worked there, I think we had about 150 to 200 narcotics agents and another 100 or so, maybe 150 special agents. So we covered everything from insurance fraud, regular crimes like homicides, things that were referred from the county district attorney's office. If they couldn't handle it, if there was a conflict or something, it would come to the attorney general's office. We had Medicaid, Medicare fraud narcotics, a huge Bureau of narcotics, cyber crimes, and we had our Intel shop that kind of sat over top of all of it. So while our a lot of our focus is on narcotics is that's kind of where I came from and where our team was born out of, we still supported our internet crimes team and they worked a lot on the child predator child trafficking issues. So we were able to offer Intel support to them to help with their cases when they needed it to our Medicaid friends to our insurance friends. So we supported the whole agency. We worked a lot of money laundering, which can reach across any of those different kind of functions within the agency. So it was was a lot of fun from my perspective to get to build out a team. And then when somebody got bored with narcotics, say, hey, go do some child predator work for a little while. And when that got to be too much, because that can be kind of a stressful field to work in, like, hey, no, come back and work on drug stuff for a little while. Go look into these Coke dealers or heroin dealers or work on money laundering which was always fun because that was definitely, at least at the state level, was a totally under-resourced, underutilized component of our investigation. We weren't following the money, and that's where we should have been because ultimately that's what matters to the cartels. You want them to stop bringing drugs into Pennsylvania, keep taking all their money, and they're going to go somewhere else because they don't want to lose their money. They really don't care about their drugs. It's their money they want. They're businessmen. So we should have, in hindsight. We should have spent more time across the board looking at the money, because that's what motivates people.
2: When you were speaking there, it reminded me of this quote from The Wire. I don't know if both of you have seen The Wire, but there's a quote in that where they say, if you follow drugs, you just end up with drug dealers. If you follow the money, then you end up in some very interesting places.
3: 100% true. And that's probably the most realistic series that I've seen that reflects like a lot of what my job was on the narcotics agent side and the intel side. That's that's probably the most realistic one I've seen. And that that quote is absolutely true. The money's what it's all about at the end of the day. Most criminals don't care about whatever they're stealing or about the actual drugs or about who's buying the drugs. Like none of that matters. They want the money. They want to make the money and they want to keep making money. So the more you can interrupt that and the more from an intel perspective we could give agents information that helped interrupt that, the more successful we would be.
2: It was quite interesting to hear you speak about building out team there and I wonder, Lisa, you know, you you mentioned that the Athlea Group was a little bit of a misnomer initially because it was just you, but tell us a little bit more about your company, about how you built that team out to address these like issues surrounding information, disinformation, misinformation. Like help us understand what it's like to be a leader building that team to deal with these issues.
0: Yeah, it's a great question because I think to be successful at detecting and mitigating disinformation, you have to build a diverse team. Diversity is really our strength in this space, and that's for a couple of reasons. So one, we know that threat actors are targeting us based on our own biases, and so we need a diverse team with a diverse set of biases to be able to detect narratives more quickly. The other piece is we need a multidisciplinary team with everybody bringing a different skill set to the table. So the way we staff our our projects is we always make sure that we have a data science perspective, frankly, a hacker's perspective, a software engineer's perspective, a threat investigator's perspective, and a reporter's perspective. So when we look at those different skill sets and making them all talk together and work together, that's when the real intelligence work happens. Because what we're doing is we're sifting through these millions of disparate data sets and points to be able to make sense of what's really going on. And that's not easy work. And so I'm glad that the group has grown. I think it's a team and industry where we are really stronger because we've gotten larger and we've been able to round out these different skills. And so the team is the best part. The other thing that we always hire for is we hire for people who are willing to engage in what we call healthy conflict. Uh, We're constantly pushing each other to look around the corner, to be able to be more succinct, to find more interesting insights, to be able to piece together what's happening so that we can paint that holistic picture that's more than just what's happening based on mainstream social media's APIs and using that data, but instead taking into account the whole of internet. And then the last thing is, like most of the intelligence world, uh, whether corporate or government, we're not talking about puppies all day long. So our team definitely has the right sense of humor and the right attitude to be able to deal with some of these heavy topics, we often find ourselves saying things in meetings like, well, the great thing about white supremacy, and then we'll be like, wait a second, there's nothing great about white supremacy, but it is easier to find in these different areas. So it's really, I would say, a team that has grit, that has dedication to the mission, that's resilient, and that is able to work together with unique skill sets and diverse perspectives to be able to put together the best products in the industry.
2: We'll be right back after this.
1: And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation – But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise – Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire.
2: And what size is your team now?
0: We're a team of 15 and we're adding positions up through 20 in the next month, which is why I have the dark circles under my eyes. and. We're going to be at 30 by the end of the year. So in addition to the main list, if anybody's interested in working with a group, you can also get in touch about that for opportunities.
2: For the diversity, you said like a diverse set of biases, which is quite interesting. What kind of diversity are you looking for? Are we speaking about gender, race, neurodiversity, all of the above? Help us understand that a bit more
0: all the above. We're looking for folks with diverse backgrounds. We have folks with diverse backgrounds. Gender diversity has never been an issue for us. I feel like everybody in the intelligence and security world has challenges recruiting women and I don't know if it's just because our leadership team has women in it, but we've never had that challenge. I think one of the interesting things about the disinformation community in general is that I look around and I feel like it's it's mostly women. So we're looking for people who have diverse perspectives. Oftentimes, that does mean that it's a diverse team in terms of everything from age to hometown to we have a lot of non-traditional college students, folks with interesting backgrounds. I do think that language plays a key role for us. Really understanding different cultures globally is important as well. And so we look for a variety of different perspectives when it comes to building our team.
2: Well, if you're ever looking for someone that was a welder, worked in a crabstick factory, drove forklifts, was in the Air Force, and is now a historian and curator, you know, I feel- we can help with
0: that too. <laughs> you know, we got the main list, we got the working together opportunities. <laughs> it's going to be great.
2: <laughs> what are some of the main challenges that you found, Avril, in building a team? Help us just understand that a little bit more. What were some of the challenges? What were some of the opportunities? What were some of the best parts about it?
3: One of the main challenges of building a brand new team in an agency that hadn't had a real intel team previously was that no one knew what we were or what we were trying to do. It's an agency that was law enforcement, generally mostly male. And my team was mostly female analysts and they were civilians. So there was a lot of sort of reluctance to bring them into the fold in investigations. There was a lot of dealing with people saying, well, they're civilians. They're not cops like us. Why do we have to tell them anything? We don't want to share information with them. So we had to spend a lot of time really building and strengthening relationships with the sworn law enforcement officers. So they understood that like, we weren't there to just, my team wasn't there to steal information. They were there to help them and make their lives easier and make their jobs go faster and more successful. Even when we did a really good job, we didn't always get recognition for it. The awards would go to the sworn people and the intel folks are kind of over on the side. But I mean, we, may, we did eventually get an award for our team. So yay for that. <laughs> By the time I left, we had gotten an international award for what we had built. So I think there was definitely some challenges on the education front, teaching people what we were there for, what we were doing, what we could do to support their cases and really kind of selling our team to everyone and getting that buy-in from them, from both the agents, their supervisors, all the way up to the top. I think it was some of the wins we had. We were able to do the first ever statewide strategic collection of intelligence information. So we went out to every single police department in Pennsylvania. I think there's about 1,300 police departments, did a survey across all those departments on what drug trends they were seeing. Nobody had ever done it before. It was the first time anybody had ever gone to sort of the boots on the ground and all the small little Pennsylvania towns, as well as, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and the bigger ones, and really collected information from the cops that are out in the community seeing what's going on, like what are the actual drug problems people are seeing besides, you know, we knew heroin was an issue, but were people seeing meth? Was crack still a thing? Like what was going on out there? We were able to put all that together into one big report that we then sent back out to all the police departments and were able to give that to our attorney general so she could make her strategic decisions based on that information. That was a pretty big win that we were able to do that with such a small team, relatively junior analysts. I think if I could do one thing differently to what Lisa was saying, I would look for more diversity on my team. I didn't have, it was mostly female, mostly younger, a lot of National Guard, like former National Guard intel analysts. I think we probably would have benefited from a little bit more diversity on our team and some other viewpoints that would have been helpful. So it was challenging. But as I said, we ended up winning an international award from ILEA, the International Association of Law Enforcement Intelligence Analysts. So that was finally some recognition for a team that was kind of starved for a little while but everybody loved coming to work. Our team was great. We had really self-motivated people that wanted to be there that liked sort of the puzzles of Intel, of putting the pieces together and being able to come back with information and be like, hey, you you sat out in surveillance for 10 hours and I found this bit of information in three minutes. You should have just come to me sooner. Those little kinds of wins in really proving our value and being able to demonstrate how much we could help make a difference. I think is what kept everybody going and kept everybody coming to work and wanting to do a good job.
2: One of the things that I find quite interesting as well, we had discussed previously some of the challenges that you faced as a female leader who's building out a team. Could you speak a little bit more about that?
3: As I mentioned, it's challenging being a female in law enforcement generally. There's a lot of things, especially in a a state agency that's kind of slow to mature and slow to evolve. There was just a lot of mindsets that were outdated and needed to evolve and hadn't. So there was not a lot of women in in our agency generally, even in sworn positions. I was one of, I think, there was about 15 or 20 people that were at my level of supervisory special agent, and I think there was only three or four of us that were women. Everybody else is a man. The attorney general was a female at the time, but most of the other senior leadership was male. My team was almost entirely female. We had two males. Out of all my analysts, so out of 14, 15 analysts, we had two males and we're in an agency full of male agents. There's just still a lot of bias out there. There's still a lot of, I think, discrimination that happens, whether it's subtle or not. There's still a feeling that we need to prove ourselves and go above and beyond to prove that we have a right to be there and that we can keep up with everybody else. It's not, I found in the private sector that hasn't had that same attitude. GitHub is my second private sector opportunity that I've had. And I walk in a room here and people expect that I know what I'm doing. Like they've already accepted it. I don't have to walk in and like prove to them that I've done this for 20 years and I am an expert in it. I just walk in and they're like, oh, look, the expert's here. And it's such a nice feeling compared to 17 years of law enforcement where you walk in and everybody turns and looks at you and you're the only woman in the room or at the table. And then you could tell that they're looking at you and thinking like, what's she doing here? So it's nice to be in a different environment hopefully law enforcement is coming along and getting to that place too. But it was definitely a challenge for me and for the women on my team.
2: One of the things that I would love to hear from both of you, if there's any young women out there that are wanting to get into the fields that you are in or so maybe use that as the first part of the question, but the second part, what if there's someone out there that's just about to start leading their own team or building their own team? What advice would both of you give
0: One of the things that the intelligence field just generally needs is more people who don't look like your typical intelligence officer. I think that the diversity is the strength of an intelligence team because one of my old bosses had this saying, and I think that this is especially true for intelligence. If we all agree on everything, then only one of us is necessary. And I think that that is definitely true when it comes to intelligence because it's like a roller coaster of I found something, wait, never mind. I found something, wait, never mind. And so if you don't have people who are going to push back and provide that challenge, then is your team really effective? And so with that, I think if you are considering getting into the field, do it take the plunge. I have to say, I not only have the benefit of being the woman in the room, but I'm also the person under 40 in the room. And it's always an interesting ride. But I have to say more and more, it's about how you show up. If you show up and you know what you're doing, and you present with confidence, and you know how to brief, and these are all things that you'll learn on the job, you're going to be just fine. And I will say that some of the biggest champions that I've ever had and the people who pulled up a seat for me at the table have been men. So I'm a big believer that go work for somebody who you're just interested in learning from. And when it comes to those who are starting to lead their own teams, I think one of the biggest lessons that I learned early on is that you as the leader protect your team. And so you as a leader get to advocate for them when you are going into whether you're in the private sector and you're going into the negotiating room to finalize a contract. You're advocating for your team. If you are working with a client and helping them to understand your team's great work, you're the one who's communicating the story of the blood, sweat, and tears that they put into that product. It's really, I think, a position of trust. And it's about having trust with your team and trust with your stakeholders. And that's a balancing act. And it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to adjust course when you get new information.
3: I would say for people thinking about getting into Intel, I agree with Lisa. Just do it. You won't regret it. There's tons of job opportunities out there in every field across the board, in the private sector, in the government sector. There's just so many opportunities and you'll never be bored. It's always changing. There's always something new that needs to be worked on. What The work Lisa's doing is amazing. So just do it. Don't look back. Just keep learning and growing and keep adding to your skill set. If you get into narcotics intelligence and you got that down, start looking to where you can expand. What can you look into next? Branch into money laundering. Branch into cyber. There's always going to be more opportunities. There's always more to learn and every little bit that you kind of add to your toolbox is just gonna help your career to grow and you to keep moving forward. For anyone about to build a team, kind of to echo what Lisa was talking about, I also had a mentor that was a male and he's the one that kind of brought me into Intel and pushed me to grow and develop and to start networking and building relationships. And I didn't want to do it. I went kicking and screaming. I you know, I didn't I didn't want to go meet a whole bunch of new people. <laughs> I didn't want to have to go make friends in all these different agencies, but I pretty quickly realized the value in it. So I would say look for someone that you can work for, as Lisa said, that you want to learn from, that is willing to teach you. Second part of that, there was an amazing woman that I worked with that said something to the effect of, "And if, if anybody ever offers you a seat at the table, take it. And I think that was, I still remember it to this day because I think sometimes I find myself hesitant to take that seat. And I remember what she said. And remember, that might be the only opportunity you get. And if somebody's offering you that seat, whether it's your mentor, or it's someone else in the room, particularly as a woman, take it while you have the opportunity, you deserve to be there, take that seat, offer your expertise, know that you know what you're talking about. And you've earned it, don't second guess it, take that opportunity.
0: One thing to add to that, if you are getting shut out of the room, go in anyways. Yes, I like like it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that I find quite interesting is like generational change. Help our listeners understand some of the generational changes that both of you have seen, whether it be women that were older than you, the kid came along in a similar path, or whether it be women of your peer group or some of the younger women that you may have had in your teams or employed or that now work for you currently help us help us understand like some of those shifts as you have seen them through your own careers
3: i hope it's getting easier for women that come after me i think you know in my law enforcement career there wasn't too many women that i worked with too many police officers or special agents there was a handful but a handful in an agency full of hundreds and hundreds so it was hard to find or build relationships with those people you know as friends with some of them but I'm sure they had a rough road because I was in law enforcement from what, 2000 to 2017. And there was still a lot of discrimination. There was, as you mentioned, there's still a lot of older men that worked or started in police departments when there wasn't women in police departments or when their job was solely to monitor the juvenile prisoners or to handle the women that got arrested. And like those people are still police officers today. They're not all retired yet. They're still there. So I think that, the people in law enforcement I worked with that were closer to my age or younger than me have grown up in sort of a different environment. I mean, even if they, a lot of them come from the military, the military is more accepting of women these days. You know, there's more women in more roles in the military than there was in the past. Law enforcement's kind of the same way. Like, there's more and more women that are joining law enforcement now and are further into their careers. So I think, I hope it's changing. I hope it's getting easier so that the women come after us don't have to have all of the same struggles. It seems like it is from my perspective. I hope it's that way from their perspective. But I think there's still work that has to be done. There's still a long way to go. I was just talking to one of my colleagues last week about the lack of maternity leave for pregnant police officers in the department I worked of. It's not a thing. It's not in the contract to have maternity leave. So if you get pregnant, you have to save up all your vacation time to try and take off if you don't have enough vacation time, you've got to work until you have that baby so you can take off and recover after you have it. Like that shouldn't even be a thing. Who wants a police officer that's nine months pregnant to be responding to a call? If they want to do it, that's one thing. But I can't imagine most pregnant women want to be in uniform wearing their vests and responding to domestics. So there's still a long way that law enforcement has to come, I think, but I hope it's getting better.
2: Just to shift the focus of our conversation just a little bit, Both of you, Avril, working for GitHub, a big deal, head of global workplace security and safety. There's a lot involved there, a lot of responsibility. And for Lisa, having your own company, your own group, your own team, and and dealing with a very fluid environment. I was just wondering, how do both of you triage information or stay up to date with everything that's going on? Because neither of you are in a static field where it's just like, well, this is the way it's always been done and we can continue to do it like that. There's constantly new challenges. There's constantly things going on in terms of misinformation, ransomware, all those sorts of things. So how do you triage information and how do you stay ahead of the developments that you need to to be able to do your job?
0: So how do I personally do it? Well, I consume a lot of media. Again, going back to I'm a millennial, I was born with a cell phone in my hand. So I am constantly consuming news, looking at what's going on, what's being posted. If you email me, I will respond in five minutes. I also, I have the TV on in the background at most times so that I can look up and see what's happening and being talked about And that's one of the parts of my job that I love. If it were the same thing day after day, I'd be in the wrong field. When it comes to triaging, I think that's kind of a more fun question for this field specifically because everything we do is open source. So we get to decide a lot of the times if we just find something out in the wild, what it is that we're going to do about it. And we make those decisions based on who can do the most good, like is this something that needs to be exposed, is this something that needs to be passed to law enforcement, is this something that needs to go get flagged as a violation on a tech platform or something like that. And that's where I think it gets really fun is the triaging part. One of the things about the open source community is you get to see the impacts of your work like the day you send the email. So it's an adrenaline junkie sort of sport, the disinformation field. It's not just staying on top of it. It's figuring out what's happening in real time. And I'm sure as anybody in Intel who's listening to this podcast knows, it's that moment when you figure out what's happening and you're like, I got them. And having that happen, it just involves consuming a large and vast amount of information.
3: That I got on part is my favorite part of Intel generally. I think that's what keeps every Intel analyst going, no matter what you know field of Intel you're working in, that part where you're like, ah, this is the bit I've been looking for, like you're mine now. <laughs> that's the best part. <laughs> yeah, so to echo what Lisa said, I think I just consume as much information as a human possibly can. I have the news on all the time. We have a couple different databases we subscribe to wherever I can find information on the internet. I have get way too many emails that I try and make my way through to try and stay on top of what's going on. And I hired Dean so I could do it for me. (laughs) I think as far as triaging, you know, I work in the private sector now. So we triage what we're working on based on what the risk is to our company or our employees and our brand. That has to be what is kind of our guiding light and what drives what we're working on. Keeping our employees safe is, you know, first and foremost and then the business and our brand. So we look for things that affect our employees and our company and kind of go from there.
2: I'm only asking this question because I think it might be important for people that want to get into this field so they've got a realistic expectation. What kind of hours are both of you having to put in to do these demanding and fluid jobs that you are doing?
3: I would say I probably work about 60 hours a week. And The whole global security function falls under my purview. So I have crisis management, business continuity, travel security, the security of our offices, the security of all our employees. So it's a lot of different things we have going on. And I like to stay on top of all of it. But I probably bring some of it on myself because I like to stay on top of the news as well. <laughs> and I feel like I always need to know what's going on everywhere at all times. So I could probably do a better job. I think the pandemic and working from home makes it more challenging to cut off at a certain time and you know not be working. But yeah, I would say probably about 60 hours a week, but some of it's self-inflicted.
0: So I'm going to answer that question in two parts. So we actually really do our best to make it so that everybody on our team has a 40-hour work week. It's really important to us that people have balance. And that's just one of the benefits, I think, of working with us. We do require flexibility because unfortunately, we don't get to decide when somebody launches an influence campaign but we make up for it if something that happens. And I'm sharing this, I don't know if I've ever said this out loud or in public, but part of being a founder is that you're just working all the time. It's really a labor of love. I joke that Alethea Group is my toddler who sometimes wakes me up at night and I just can't stop thinking about it. But that's because as the founder, it's yes, I'm I'm doing and overseeing all the things that we've just talked about with my partner in stopping crime, Cindy Otis, in terms of the, the analytic products, but we're also in working with clients, all of that good stuff, providing strategy advice, helping people figure out what to do about something. We always say that we're not just going to drop a 50 page report in your lap and say, it's a foreign nation. Good luck. We're going to help you figure out what to do about it. So that's the part of the job that I love. The other parts of the job I love though, that also fall to me are the financial health of the organization, business development, marketing, all of the legal. I, I joke that some days I'm the CEO, some days I'm the junior analyst, some days I am the legal counsel and the accountant. So I think that's one of the things where I would say my life has gotten less chaotic and more balanced as we've grown because that's part of dele- being able to delegate but I would say I probably work 60 to 80 hours a week. But at the same time, one of the milestones that I think is worth celebrating because everybody who's a founder celebrates things like headcount, I took five days off and I knew that the place would be just the same and not better when I got back than when I left. And so we have reached those milestones and I'm starting to get more balance.
2: I guess part of asking that was, Is that one of the things that need to, the traditional work model or the traditional workplace, is that one of the things that needs to change for women to be fully represented at the senior levels? Help me understand your kind of takes on the workplace model and on the advancement of women into positions of leadership.
0: I do think that we need to provide people with more flexibility where all adults get your work done. And I think that's something that millennials and Gen Z really push for, and I'm glad that they do. I do think there's kind of two sides to that coin, right? There's the side of the coin that says we need to make workplaces more flexible for women, but we need to also make them more flexible for men too, and same-sex couples, all of that. I think it just workplaces need to be more flexible for everyone. And traditionally, those responsibilities in terms of taking care of families and making sure dinner on the table has fallen to women. But I also think that the other pieces where we're moving into a society where that's not necessarily the norm anymore. And we have a lot of single parent households, we have a lot of Of just, it's not the 1950s anymore. And so workplaces do need to realize and adapt to their team's needs.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think in law enforcement, you'll see some of that start to change as more and more women get into law enforcement roles as police officers and special agents. A lot of this stuff is contractual. So when there's more women in the unions that are voting on the contract, there's more women to be represented as they get on the boards of their unions and things like that. They'll have a bigger say in what goes into those contracts. So things like maternity leave, there'll be an advocate there to argue for it. When it it was just me and one other woman at my police department, how are we going to get 70 other people on our... Even if they agree with us in theory, when there's a list of things that are... You're negotiating a contract and there's a list of 10 things and one of those 10 things only applies to two people, what's the first to get negotiated out? The maternity benefit. So I think as more and more women start to move into these roles, which we're seeing... I think they'll have a lot more success in getting things into their contracts. So there'll be better provisions for things like maternity leave for like separate locker rooms. You're starting to see those changes already. I think Lisa's absolutely right that the generation that's coming up now and getting into the workforce now and getting to these roles now is what's going to make the difference. There's just better representation across the board for, for women, for men, for non-binary folks their voices are going to be heard and they're going to be what's going to lead to change, permanent change in the right direction.
2: And just a couple of final questions. One of them was, if you're looking out there on the world, as both of you are all too well aware, there's a lot of like malevolence out there. There's a lot of people that want to scam other people or that want to exploit other people or that are frankly dangerous with both of your respective positions. How do you analyze them? How do you perform your function without there being blowback? So I guess the question is, how do you analyze a viper very closely while at the same time being careful that it doesn't come back and bite you? So, I mean, for example, Lisa, misinformation, disinformation. I mean, do you worry about your company, about your group being on the radar of particular types of actors? Help us just understand that, like trying to analyze a threat, but making sure that you don't become something that the threat comes back at.
0: I think it's a great question. I think it points to the need for really good operational security, which we have. That's always been a priority for us. So. We make sure that we're able to do our work, but that we're able to do it safely, and we put our employees' safety first, so we also invest in other protective measures for them. So some of this is behavioral stuff, just teaching good cyber hygiene. Some of this is you can pay to get your PII scrubbed from the internet, and it's well worth it. So we'll do things like that to help our team. In terms of being on radars, I mean, like, yeah, RT has written about us. People write mean blogs about me sometimes on weird QAnon message boards. Like, it's par for the course. Does it feel great when you're getting trolled online? No, but you know it's going to last 24 hours, and it means that you're doing something right. I think for all of us and for our team, it's a risk that we're aware of, and it's a risk that we manage the way we would manage any risk but I think that we all feel that the risk of doing nothing is much greater than the risk of any one of us getting targeted. But it is something that we actively manage and look for because, again, our team's safety, well-being, all of that is just totally paramount.
2: Just briefly, PII, and earlier you mentioned API,
0: PII is personally identifiable information, and that's the information that you wouldn't want out in public. It's things like your home address, your cell phone number, your full name, your social security number, any piece of data that somehow is unique to you. In some cases, it could even be an email address. But those are the different types of PII that we're talking about. API is an application programming interface. And what that is, is it's basically a term that as it relates to software specifically, it's basically the thing that you can plug other things into and make data flow back and forth. So think of it kind of like the pipes and how you can ingest data through an API. So instead of having to go and click on every single post on Facebook, for example, or take a screenshot of every single one, you used to, you can't anymore, just buy Facebook's API and be able to ingest that into your system so that you can easily digest and manipulate the data that you're querying.
2: And
3: Avril, I feel like in the private sector now, I'm a lot less worried about my safety in, in law enforcement. You know, I worked, I lived in or near the departments I worked for. So I grocery shopped at the same store from people I just bought drugs from. And things like that. So, I had a lot more concern for my safety than working in law enforcement because you're just, you're, it's a lot easier for people to find you. There's a lot more reason for them to come look for you if they have nefarious intent. They don't want to go to jail and they don't want you to testify in court and they don't want you to be, you know, if they, things like that. You know, we've seen a lot of incidents over the last couple of years of police officers' homes being vandalized or set on fire, things like that because of some anti police sentiment stuff like that. Now I feel like I'm a lot more anonymous now. So it's it's a lot easier from a corporate security standpoint to look out at the threat landscape, kind of take stock of what's going on, look into things without people ever really knowing who I am, what I'm doing, what I'm looking into. The threats are just different. So I think it's it's I have a lot more peace of mind now for me and my family than I ever did working in law enforcement.
0: Was there ever a situation where like you actually ran into somebody who you like just bought drugs from and then were in uniform?
3: And then I was in uniform when I ran into him a second time.
0: Yeah. Where you're like, oh God, I hope you don't recognize me.
3: There was times they would have me buy drugs on overtime. So I would, <laughs> I would work a sector in my uniform with my hair up in a bun. And then I would literally come back in a Ford Bronco half an hour later and buy drugs from the same people that just saw me driving around. And they, I don't understand. I was like one of two females. How do they not know I'm the same female they just saw in a uniform? But it's, they're all about the money. That's what it comes down to. So they just want to get that $20 out of my hand. And they would even ask me, like, oh, you're not, you're not a cop, right? Or, oh, I heard you're a cop. I'm like, yeah, I totally am. And they're like, for real? I'm like, yeah. No, I'm not a cop. I'm just messing with you. I'm like, oh, okay. And they would give me the drugs. i <laughs> like, I don't, I, it didn't matter if I told them I was a cop. If I told them I wasn't a cop, they just wanted the money out of my hand and they would sell me the drugs. And I don't know how they ever didn't realize that I was the same person because I feel like I still look the same if my hair is up and I'm wearing a uniform. <laughs> but there was only one time that I ever ran into anybody when I wasn't at work and they didn't approach me. It was in the grocery store, matter of fact, that I saw them. They saw me. And for a second, I was like, this might not be good. i dressed like a 20-year-old woman or 20, I think I was 24 at the time, 24-year-old woman. So I had a tank top on and little shorts. I'm like, please don't let them know I am. That's the last thing I wanted to do is get in you know, a fight in the parking lot of a grocery store or the, the cheese aisle of a grocery store with someone. But yeah, it made me really realize that I needed to move further away or I needed to stop buying drugs and working where I did, because it, it wasn't a good feeling. It felt very vulnerable to run into someone that I knew was a bad guy, and they might know what I am. And the same rules don't apply. Like at least, I feel like when I first got into law enforcement, there was some sort of ground rules that everybody kind of understood that you had your job, you were doing your job, they were the bad guy, they were doing their thing, and it was that cat and mouse game. But like there was some kind of ground rules. And like now I feel like there's no rules. People just don't care anymore. The value of life has gone down. And I feel like it's only been 20 years, but I feel like there's not that same level of care about other humans. So I would have a lot more concern now running into some bad guys because people just kill people over nothing anymore. So I don't think that, you know, I don't feel like bad guys have (laughs) bad guys and girls, whatever. Criminals have the same reverence for human life that they would or that they did even 20 years ago. I would be a lot more worried that someone would hurt me or hurt my kids
2: you preempted my final question i just thought to myself it shouldn't it shouldn't be me that gets all the fun so i wondered if there was any questions that you wanted to ask each other but you've just you've just asked one so do, do you have anything you want to ask lisa avril
3: oh that's a good question everything you're doing just seems amazing so <laughs> i don't know i might reach out to you after this because i'm sure i'm gonna have a ton of questions i mean dean's spoken about you a lot in the work that you're doing But I guess, what's the biggest challenge that you face?
0: The biggest thing that we do, and it it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, we have to narrow the scope. Like We can't boil the ocean. And we are private sector, so we work for clients. So we look at things like reputational risk, threats to physical security. Is a narrative going to impact your stock price? Can we attribute the short seller attack? Different things like that. So what we do is really targeted. And so the scoping part and getting that right and getting everybody on the same page. Also, we have we have to do a lot, I think, of education with our clients around what's actually possible in the realm of the possible. I think people think that there's like a Google for the IRA that we have that's just like, oh yeah, like send me the accounts of people being mean to you online and we'll tell you if they're an operative of a for- of an adversarial nation. And that's just like not how this works. So I think that that's the other piece is helping people to understand what's really happening, because everybody has a different take on the internet, given what their favorite news station is. Those would be the biggest challenges. But I also think that's the most fun part, because that's what makes it dynamic. If every day were the same, like, I wouldn't be able to keep a team. They would be like, okay, well, we figured this out and it was really nice to meet you and we're going to quit after three months. So I think that while that's the challenging part, that's also the joy. And then the other piece is just thinking about the future, right? So right now I'm on this kick where it's like all I think about is the internet is fracturing. What does that mean when we can't get data from other countries' internets anymore? It's not as free and open as it used to be. What does it mean when you sign on to your laptop overseas and you're on a Microsoft server versus an Amazon server versus a Huawei server? What does that mean for your data? What does that mean? How do you use that responsibly? So we're also like looking at getting getting ahead of some of these things. And what does that look like? And then it's just the constant balance. We've set very strict ethical standards that we are constantly making sure still ring true but there's not much regulation in the space. So one of the things that's always top of mind for me is making sure that we're on the right side of the line. We're white hat. We don't go on the offensive. That's not the role of the private sector. There are companies that are starting to do that though. And so I think for us, it's really about making sure that what we're doing is going back to we live our lives is how do we lead the world better for the people who come after us? We want to make sure that we're just working towards those solutions.
2: This is fascinating. I could easily listen to just both of you talking to each other for hours. I think we've done a very good job of covering a lot of terrain. Well, thanks ever so much.